Greg Pallast, always an entertaining guest. We hope that we will have him back on again soon. I, I have to start, I think, with that hand grenade of a question that I asked him about near the end. Because, well, last night I, I got a call from a rather perturbed good friend of mine who noted that a, a journalist he's well acquainted with was, was really beside herself. The reason for that were the recent moves Donald Trump has made over at the Pentagon to remove the Secretary of Defense, which he has now done. Trump and Secretary Esper did not always see eye to eye to the benefit of the public, I would editorialize. But Trump has now replaced him with an obscure counterintelligence official named Christopher Miller. His resume is rather thin. We do know that his chief of staff, a man named Cash Patel, evidently greased the skids for him to get the role and is now acting as the chief of staff. Uh, Patel is a former partisan of Devin Nunes and clearly, clearly a Trump loyalist. And, well, what has my friend's connection and, and people like the Times of India and others upset is that this seems to smell like, you know, a possible coup. Now, just to even say such a thing is, is disturbing, but I do want to calm the waters a bit by pointing out that if a coup is taking place, it's being organized by Donald J. Trump. If you contemplate how well everything else has gone down that has ever been organized by Donald Trump, well, you, you just have to feel a little bit better about things. And although we can't be sure what Secretary Miller and his chief of staff, Mr. Patel, might be up to, it does appear that the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is a rock we need to perhaps depend upon at the moment. Uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, has made it clear that the U.S. military is going to have nothing to do with uh, whatever might happen in a disputed election. The legendary Peter Dale Scott posted on Facebook uh, this morning. He was repeating the comments that Milley made on October 12th to NPR about the possibility of disputed an election. He said, there's no role for the U.S. military in determining the outcome of a U.S. election. Zero. There is no role there. The New York Times reported in June that Milley had angered Trump by disagreeing with him twice to his face, once about using active duty troops to quash protesters, such as the ones up in Portland, and once about Trump's order to use chemical agents on protesters during the president's notorious Lafayette Square photo op. General Milley and Secretary Esper ultimately decided to accompany Trump on his walk across the square. Milley later said, I should not have been there. My presence in that moment and in that environment created a perception of the military involved in domestic politics. The Washington Post notes that Milley would be harder to fire than Esper. He was confirmed by the Senate for a four-year term as chairman starting in 2019 by a vote of 89 to 1. Replacing him with a political loyalist, we would say, we might use the word stooge, would be difficult, said the Post, because the Joint Chiefs chairman position has a specific requirement, including that it must be filled by a senior military commander, although it's possible Trump could try and exert a waiver. The Post notes that Milley has also worked to stay in Trump's personal good graces more successfully than Secretary Esper, but officials warn that that might not stop White House officials who want him gone. Anyway, an awful lot of what we're talking about will become fairly irrelevant in the event of a coup d'etat in America. But as Greg Pallast points out, you know, if Wall Street's pretty darn happy with uh, Joe Biden 
that's going to work against the efforts of Mr. Trump. And Mr. McMillan points out there seems to be no love lost between powerful federal agencies, including the Central Intelligence Agency and FBI, as regarding the nation's chief executive. Um, it seems they would be, well, let's just say reluctant to go along with any efforts to usurp power in the United States. We certainly hope so, anyway. I think I mentioned in the interview with Greg Palace that uh, yours truly was a little bit put out by some of the numbers he was uh, examining on election night. And yeah, I know some people who I respect uh, don't don't see anything funny about the fact that the polls are off. They accept the idea that, you know, polls in America, boy, they just they just don't work. My answer to that is that statistics will tend to cluster around, you know, the uh, the correct answer to something. Now, if there is a bias that's built in to uh, the evaluating process, well, then, yes, the numbers will be systematically skewed in the wrong direction. But we talked many years ago on this program about this, this idea that there was the, the so-called shy Bush voter in the wake of Bush's re-election in 04. He experienced a very large bump on election day compared to the exit polls because er- earlier in the day, the exit polls showed that John Kerry had a 3% lead. And, and by God, when the votes were counted, it turned out that Bush won by 2.5%. That's a 5.5 percentage point swing. A little suspicious. We talked to a statistician in the wake of that whose name unfortunately escapes me at the moment. We'll have to look that up. But uh, he, he explained that this idea of the... He explained that this idea of the shy Bush voter would indicate that if, 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 if people were reluctant, voters were reluctant as they left the polls to tell a pollster who they'd voted for, you would expect them to be most embarrassed about that in areas that trended toward Kerry. In fact, it turned out that the largest anomalies inevitably turned up in the precincts that were highly favorable to Bush. Now, it's possible that maybe, you know, those sorts of people just hate pollsters and don't want to tell the truth to them. But we here at Radio Parallax are skeptical of that interpretation. And coming forward in time, I'd like to just take a look at some of the anomalies that we saw in the polling data. On election night, I was a little bit perturbed. Actually, I was a lot perturbed. Because having followed the polling data very closely and printing it all up so I'd have it right in front of me, wouldn't forget, it was, you know, there on black and white, well, the numbers just weren't adding up. Now, everybody knew as I think Greg Palace just reminded us, that by telling everybody to vote by mail, it ensured that on election night, the initial polling data would be heavily biased in Trump's favor. We talked about that on this program. That was something that everybody was aware of. And, and I do want to note that we predicted on this program that by 11 o'clock on election night, Trump would declare that he was the victor. Which, of course, he did, claiming he'd won Michigan, he'd won Pennsylvania, and he'd won Georgia, even though the votes were still being counted in all those places. And in fact, as we speak right now, he's behind in all three. But, you know, I, I do want to apologize for, you know, alluding the president would have a press conference at 11 p.m. to make that claim. Uh, I was wrong. It took until 11.22. But to clue you in on what sort of things I, I thought were suspicious, I thought I'd just run through some of the states and what was predicted based on the polls and what the outcomes were. This is not the most recent data, so the percentages may have changed ever so slightly. I took a hard look at 11 of the so-called swing states. I'm only going to cite seven of them right now. Okay, first among the seven, Arizona was predicted to go to Biden by two and a half. It went by 0.6. That's a shift of 1.6% to Trump. Florida, predicted to go to Biden by 2.7, went to Trump by 3.4. 
That's a shift of 6.1% to Trump. Pennsylvania. Polls showed that Biden was up 3.7%. In the end, he was up by 0.7%. That's a shift of 3% to Trump. In Ohio, Trump had a lead of 0.9%. When the votes were counted, he was up 7.4%. That's a shift of 6.5% to Trump. Texas polls had Trump up 1.3%. When the votes were counted, it was 5.9%. Shift of 4.6% to Trump. Wisconsin, 9.2% lean to Biden in the polls, 0.6% in the vote. That is an 8.6% shift to Trump. And then there's Georgia. What do you know? The poll data showed Biden had a 0.2% edge when the votes are counted and they're still being counted. Looks like it's at 0.2, although it might have gone to 0.3. At any rate, that's pretty much a wash. There was no major shift to Trump. But of the 11 states they took a look at, Georgia's the only one. Now, the New York Times took a look at this. They did they did their own poll, which is slightly more favorable to Biden than the the aggregate polls I was just citing to you, which came from 270towin.com. But they took a look at the sudden surge of votes that took place in 2016 and factored that in. Yours truly then compared the actual vote count to the vote shift that took place in 2016. So even factoring in what happened to 2016, I think I'll just run down the states and how it changed. Arizona, 1.4% to Trump. Florida, greater than 5.4% to Trump. Georgia, greater than 2.8% to Trump. Iowa, 4.7% to Trump. Michigan, 10.4% to Trump. Nevada, 15.4% to Trump. North Carolina, 1.4%. Holy mackerel, to Biden. But then there's Ohio, 0.4% to Trump. Pennsylvania, 6.3% to Trump. Texas, 4.9% to Trump. And Wisconsin, 13.4% to Trump. Now, you know, I'm just throwing a lot of numbers at you and I realize that the actual numbers are not that important. What is important is the fact that there seems to be a discernible trend here. And finally, in, in testing out this hypothesis that uh, perhaps because people are reluctant to admit they were Trump voters, they, they lied to the pollsters. If that was true, you'd expect that the states, particularly the ones that had the largest swings, the largest anomalies from what the polling predicted, would be the blue states, right? Well... There were nine states that had a greater than 12% shift from the polling data to the actual voting count. They were West Virginia, red, Kentucky, red, South Dakota, red, New York, blue, Wyoming, red, Tennessee, red, North Dakota, red, Maine, mostly blue, Idaho, red. Anyway, seven of these nine states with huge shifts to Trump were red states. I'm not a statistician. We need to bring one on to talk about this in greater detail. But at this point in time, no one's going to convince me that st statistics and mathematics, which seem to work fine in other countries, just mysteriously don't work here in America. Many people point out, and Greg Pals is among them, that the State Department of the United States judges the free and fair elections of other nations based on the discrepancy between the polling data and the vote count. When they see swings are greater than 5% in other countries, they tend to declare the election invalid, fraudulent, just not here at home. We've said before in this program, and we'll say again right now, that, uh, that COVID-19, the pandemic sweeping the United States, and election 2020 are completely entwined. We would again like to plug the website, trumppandemic.net, for a detailed examination of how this country has gone wrong 
and it has gone wrong mainly because of the determined policies of one individual, the President of the United States. But an interesting parallel has popped up in the last few days. We alluded to it, uh, actually, it, it popped up a week or two ago. It turns out that things are going badly in Europe. We know that. There's been a resurgence now, long predicted, that when the winter came, when the cold weather came, we would see a resurgence of the virus. That is now, in fact, taking place in Europe as it is here in America. I was a little, I was a little surprised to note that the country that seems to be hit worst in Europe is Belgium. I inquired with a Belgian friend about this, and she didn't know much about it. But luckily, The Week magazine, the current issue, explains what's going on pretty clearly. And it's worth a look. A summary of four different Belgian publications, reprinted in The Week magazine, tells us the following. Quoting Simone Andreas in De Standard, It was noted that Belgium's health crisis is the direct result of its governance crisis. Chronically divided between French and Dutch-speaking regions and parties, Belgium was left in the hands of a caretaker government for 494 days following the May 2019 elections, which produced no clear path to a coalition. With little leadership at the federal level, provinces and communities took their own measures to combat the virus. And hotspots then emerged in the most lax areas, while in the most stringent areas, people wearied of the restrictions and threw caution to the wind. And by a stroke of bad luck, coalition negotiations, which began to bear fruit finally in September, took place just as the viral spread was again accelerating. Lawmakers were distracted with political horse trading and lost some critical weeks. Worse, noted De Standard, the interim government had chosen that time to shake up its COVID advisory board, booting out several scientists to make room for business leaders who oppose virus mitigation measures. Noted the paper, by the time the new seven-party coalition government was sworn in on October 1st, the catastrophe was upon us. So I want to pause right there and say, does anyone see any parallels here? A federal government which provides no clear standardized response to the virus, a patchwork of measures uh, cobbled together by various jurisdictions, some of which are quite lax, leading to an outbreak, some of which are quite strong, leading people to push back. Doesn't this remind you of some other country? We think this is pretty good evidence that if you do stupid stuff, you get bad results. Of course, a corollary to this is you don't need Donald Trump to screw things up. Just the kind of government that boots out scientists to make room for business leaders who oppose virus mitigation measures because they cost money. We don't have much trust in economists on this program, but I, I do not understand how it is that economists here and there cannot sit down, calculate the costs of what a society loses when that many people die, when that many people go in the hospital, and when that many people suffer other health problems that even after surviving the virus. We'll have more to say about that a little later. But we're not quite finished with Belgium. Writing in La Libre, Francis van der Wosteins said, Belgium's house is on fire. The autumn coronavirus surge is now growing at an exponential rate, and another strict lockdown has been implemented to prevent our hospitals from being overwhelmed. On a single day this week, we recorded 173 deaths, the highest daily number since April, and 17,000 new infections, which the week describes as a staggering number in a country of only 11.5 million people, about the same as Ohio. Belgium now has the highest per capita death rate in Europe, largely because of said La Libre, our fragmented government's incoherent response to the pandemic. 
adding, as experts and hospital directors sounded the alarm bells, the country's various, quote, authorities, unquote, bickered, and the virus spread. The Germans are looking at this with some disapproval. Franziska Wellenzoen in Tagesschau Day, which I presume is a German paper, noted that nurses in Belgium say they're forced to keep working if they've tested positive but don't have symptoms. Because, it said, if these frontline workers went into quarantine, the health system would collapse. (laughs) Right. That's thinking. The Germans note that some desperate Belgian hospitals have started shipping patients across the border into Germany, where plenty of beds remain available. And not to whip a dead horse, but one final note from Lesoir in Belgium. Writer Beatrice Delvaux said, in relation to the new crackdown and the new restrictions, We feel simultaneously stunned, relieved, and worried. Our relief at finally having a real government that can make decisions tempered by our horror at what those leaders are telling us. Yeah, that seems to have parallels to America too, doesn't it? We've neglected to mention that uh, Joe Biden has put together a coronavirus task force. He's reaching out to, he's reaching out to distinguished scientists, public health authorities, and physicians to treat this pandemic like a disease. Anthony Fauci is not on his uh, coronavirus task list for, for a good reason. Fauci is still doing what he can to bring sanity to the Trump administration response, and you know he, he should be left in place to do what he can. His tenure is not tied to that of an of a administration. He's not a political appointee. Therefore, we can rest comfortably knowing that Anthony Fauci will still be around on January 21st. And who knows, at that point, he might get listened to. Now, we do know there was some fanfare. Pfizer has announced that the preliminary trials are showing a 90% uh, effectiveness rate with their vaccine. But, you know, if all goes perfectly well, and I mean perfectly well, we may see mass vaccinations by maybe April, if we're lucky. And, of course, that doesn't mean everybody in the country. They're going to start, uh, you know, as, as the vaccines come off the production line, treating frontline workers, healthcare workers, and then spreading out from that into teachers, et cetera. Where do radio hosts fall in that? Uh, po- possibly dead last. Aww. How about radio producers? Perhaps second to last. Anyway, we, we need to bring Stephen Harper back on this program, hopefully next week. His, his timelines were a, a very valuable resource for all Americans. And as a professor of law and expert on Donald J. Trump's history, uh, he's just the guy we need to talk to about what we might expect over the next 10 weeks. That's assuming between now and next week there's not a coup d'etat in America. Anyway, Mr. Merlin tells me we got about nine minutes or so left. Let's talk about something else besides, you know, election politics and, and viruses, shall we? Although, as I look down at our choices here for the good, the bad, and the ugly, we, we may not be able to, to quite get away. But let us, let us do the good, the bad, and the ugly. The week notes it was a good week last week for rehab. After Google searches for liquor store near me hit an all-time high on election night. It is reported that searches for anxiety and move to Canada also skyrocketed. And it was surely a bad week last week for American exceptionalism with the news that the United States became the first nation on earth to report more than 100,000 new cases of COVID in a single day. 
The U.S. single-day total of over 100,000. I think we actually peaked at 126 a few days ago, but stick around. We'll do better. It smashed India's previous record of 97,800. Hey, we're number one. You know, Donald Trump did promise us during his campaign that there'd be so much winning that we'd be tired of winning. And you know, I, in a way, he's right. Right at the moment, I'm, I'm feeling pretty tired of winning. And it was an ugly week last week for magical thinking. And no, in this case, we're not referring to the notion that Trump actually won the election or that COVID-19 would go away after November 3rd. And you know, come to think of it, we're now a week past that deadline. That virus ought to be gone by now, don't you think, Mr. McMillan? That's what they said. Well, no. In this case, the magical thinking we're referring to is reports that two con men in Uttar Pradesh, India, tricked a doctor, a doctor, into paying $94,000 for an Aladdin-style magic lamp containing, this is my favorite part, containing a wish-granting genie. Now, of course, the police in Uttar Pradesh took a look at this whole thing. <laughs> they announced that the genie was, in fact, one of the men in disguise. Now, we have to confess, we like this story so much, we decided to stop rolling tape, do a little research. We wanted further details, and, and they are the following. Apparently, it was Laik Khan, reportedly was a doctor in London before he returned to India. It was he who approached the police in Uttar Pradesh after he realized the lamp did not, in fact, have any magical powers. We're happy to report that the men were arrested last week and remain in custody ahead of charges being filed. The wife of one of the men was reportedly involved in the fraud, but a senior official noted she is on the run. Apparently, when the doc was first shown the lamp, and I guess the genie showed up, and I'm sorry, I just, I just can't help over some of the details in this story. The doctor described how he first met the con men when he began treating a woman who they described as their ailing mother. The doctor apparently then began treating her in her home. In his complaint, he wrote, I started visiting their home to treat the supposed mother. Gradually, they started telling me about a Baba, a godman, claimed who supposedly also visited their home. They started brainwashing me and asked me to meet this Baba. He notes that he later realized that the genie who made an appearance in front of him was one of the accused dressed up as Aladdin. Anyway, in other stories about gullible doctors, we would report to you that Dr. Ben Carson, the reported neurosurgeon and currently Donald Trump's Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, has now tested positive for COVID-19. When exactly he got it seems a little unclear, but it is known that he attended the election night party at the White House which was also attended by Mark Meadows, who has also now tested positive for COVID-19. Now, while it's not clear that Dr. Carson, you know, got this disease at the election party, it is a known fact that there were few masks present that night and no social distancing. And Dr. Carson was in there mingling. As word of more and more people in the White House inner circle uh, testing positive for COVID-19 is circulated, it's pretty clear that... Uh, they're getting very cagey about releasing information because, well, it, it just it makes them look bad. Anyway, if Ben Carson does decide that he's been misled, brainwashed, as it were, by someone who is uh, purporting to have magical powers to maybe make the virus just go away after the election, well, we hope he files a report with the authorities over there in Uttar Pradesh. 
Let's close out with just a few miscellaneous items. Here's one that's pretty irresistible. Apparently, a Chinese man was presented with a dinner bill for nearly $3,000 after a woman brought 23 of her relatives along on their first date. The man reportedly looked uncomfortable as the woman's large family began ordering pricey drinks and dishes. The woman said she was testing if he would be generous enough to pay for all 25 people. The answer is apparently not, because the man fled the scene and did not reply to repeated attempts to contact him, leaving her to foot the bill for her family. And in spite of all this talk about economic devastation, the New York Times is reporting that because people aren't dining out or attending concerts or ball games as frequently, and many have canceled their gym memberships, this means that there's been a soaring personal savings rate. The share of income left after taxes and expenses, which was hovering at a little over 7% before the pandemic, has hit a record of 33% as of April. So people have extra money, and they probably will spend it when the time comes, don't you think? And CNN is reporting that Marco Permunian, founder of the Italian Citizenship Assistance, says that requests for his services have increased by 400% compared with last year. Evidently, Italy's handing of the pandemic, since it was hit so hard last spring, doing better now, along with universal health care and the right to live and work anywhere in the European Union, appeals to Americans ready to say arrivederci to the U.S. It turns out that American descendants of Italian immigrants are eligible to become Italian citizens. Of course, this is Italy. It can't be that straightforward. You Italian-Americans apparently can claim Italian citizenship so long as the immigrant ancestor didn't become naturalized in the U.S. before the birth of the next person in the line of descent. I'll leave you to figure that out. All right, in our final minute, we just pray that things are going to turn out okay in this country. Yeah, it's true that 20 years ago, we didn't have an idea who was going to be president until the middle of December. But the fact of the matter is, it's quite different now. We do know who the president-elect is. And the man in the White House is predictably acting like his usual asinine self. We understand his reluctance. He's facing criminal charges and financial obligations that would break a, a far better man than he. But we think the truth is, in spite of all you heard from Greg Palast, the votes are all counted. Joe Biden's going to have 306 electoral votes. That's assuming it's done right. And the country can move on. Anyway, this program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. We hope to bring Stephen J. Harper back on the program next week. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you then.